Hubris, Round 5, Group 2. This piece is titled, The Dreamscape Highway. Content warnings include squishing, squelching, schlooping, vehicle collisions, sudden impacts, and light body horror. Enjoy your stay in the dreamscape. You're sure this is the right way? It's an endless highway through eternal dusk. Our eyes are pretty good. We're going the right way. I'm certain that's not how navigation works, even in the collective unconscious. Look, which one of us is in a live nightmare here? You, but... That's right, me. So obviously I know the direction of the waking world. But that doesn't follow at all. Just drive. (sighs) Fine. Hey, yeah. Mind if I put on the radio? Go for it. Welcome back to Infinity Point 9 XPSN. All exposition, all the time. Coming to you through the Dreamwaves to bring you live the details about your life. Wait, what's this show about? Yeah, it's pretty obvious if you listen. What, they don't have expository radio stations in the waking world? A highway cuts through the endless black sand of the desert, stretching out in the headlights of a strangely luminous convertible car. A car that, the closer you look at it, the more difficult it would become to describe, shifting and flowing under your attempts to interpret it, almost as though it were more the idea of a car than a car itself. For indeed, that is what it is. That's our car! You're gonna miss the best part. The car is occupied by two entities, In the passenger seat sits a nightmare, escaped from the mind that spawned it. It punches the air as it recognizes itself being described. Smoky pseudopods leaving little puffs of self in the wind as they dangle out of the open window. It calls itself... Valentine. In the driver's seat, more solid than the rest of the world around her, is a figure in what appears to be a tattered, pared-down Victorian diving suit. This is Cameron Healy. The world's first somnonaut, a pioneer in dream exploration. She is very, very badly lost. Uh, uh, Okay, how is it doing that? You've been trapped in the collective unconscious for how long now? I thought you were some kind of dream expert. Hey, you didn't even know you were a nightmare until you chased me out of that guy's head. And I said thank you so many times. The two of them bicker for a moment, while around them innumerable dreamer-faced sphinxes fill the desert, flashing from sketched out half-life into full color and back again as the car races past. Little do they know that their vehicle is about to collide. Wait, what did it just say? The car careens down the highway, skidding across the sands and shedding thought metal until it comes to a rest, smoking slightly against the flanks of a sphinx dressed incongruously in a paper hat. (coughs) What the fuck was that? Oh, my endoskeletal musculatures! You okay, buddy? Oh, give me a minute, give me a minute. Okay, I'm gonna go see how bad the damage is. Cameron steps out of the car, walking slowly around it, 
The chassis is missing pieces, seemingly torn from it by an impact with something large and sharp and many-faceted. Cameron looks around, trying to see if the shape that looms suddenly out of the darkness is still lurking, waiting, only to see that the shattered pieces of thought metal that had been torn from the car slowly subliminating in the dusk air. Shit. How bad is it? Uh, this thing isn't moving until we make repairs. We're gonna need to find tea metal somewhere. Where the hell are we gonna find that out here? As one, the two travelers turn to look at the Sphinx. Its face, rather than being made of the honey-colored sandstone that one might expect, exhibits the pale, pimpled skin of a teenager. Beneath the chin is a single door. This is the entrance to the dreaming mind of Doran. We'll have to hope that there's some in there. Valentine slithers out of the car with a sigh. It's pseudopods hitting the sand with a sound not unlike that of a jello mold falling off the shelf. And Somnonaut and Nightmare together trudge out of the desert and into the unknown passages of Doran's mind. We now bring you these messages from the analogous position in the waking world. It is a day like any other at the Bedford House of Roast Beef, or Beehorb, as it is known to the local teens. Behind the counter, crafting the exquisite roast beef sandwiches for which the eatery was named, toiled Doran and Sage, but clad in their glorious striped shirts and paper hats, as the sandwich artisans employed here have been for generations. On this day, however, something is clearly troubling Doran. Beef is up. I had the soup dream again. Damn, dude. Not again. The dream that Doran was referring to was one wherein he found himself climbing up a seemingly endless mountainside, his arms and legs groaning under the weight of a huge and heavy backpack. Finally, after hours of climbing, he would emerge at the summit to find, catching the rays of the sunset, a huge sparkling lake. It's beautiful. Doran would put down his heavy pack and peel off his sweat-soaked clothes to dive joyfully into the water. He would kick and splash and feel the cold wetness on his skin, but then something would swim up through the depths. Something huge and long and orange. A carrot? It's so big. And on realizing this, Doran would look around him and see, bobbing on the lake's surface, more and more huge vegetables. And the lake's water, once so cool and sweet, would become saltier and hotter and thicker. Oh my god. Oh no. No. No, 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 no. Until finally, just as Doran realized what was happening, a huge round shadow fell across him. And as he looked up, the sun was blotted out by the gleaming silver metal of an enormous, rapidly approaching spoon. It's soup! <sighs> Whereupon Doran would awake, <sighs> soaked in sweat <sighs> in his own bed. Not again. Got those. I have that dream every night before work. What do you think it means? Well... But Sage does not have time to delve into Doran's neuroses, as at that very moment, the door bursts open and the lunch rush pours in, and the air overflows with the cries of teenagers greeting one another in this, their sacred feasting ground. Behorb! 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 
Coming up on the hour, we return to Cameron and Valentine and just what they're up to in this young beef jockey's mind. XPSN. Fascinating. A dream focused on climbing a mountain. Clearly a metaphor for some kind of repeated, ongoing labor. Oh, it's so hot. The interior of the Sphinx had, as do all Sphinx interiors, become a landscape unto itself. As Cameron and Valentine entered, they've been walking for some time now up the mountainside and cresting the top of the hill, find the same sparkling lake before them as did Doran the previous night. Wait, what was that about the same lake? How are we hearing the radio? I thought we left it outside in the car. Uh, Probably it broke off in the crash. It did break off in the crash. The concept of the radio broke off? Well, that makes as much sense as anything else here. Incredible. It must have latched onto us as some kind of omniscient narrator. Oh, this bears further study. I can't believe that this is a thing. Oh, who cares? My pedipals are sticking to my thorax. I'm going for a swim. I wouldn't advise that until we figure out what the lake's a metaphor for. You worry so much. Look at me. I'm not scared of anything. That's because you're adapted to be the most frightening thing in your environment. You know, it's not actually useful. Oh, come on, swim. What's the worst that could happen? And, driven by the lore of dramatic irony, the first carrot surfaces on the lake. Oh, is that a giant carrot? Valentine? I I think you should get out of there. But it's too late. The cool lake waters have turned thick and viscous, and as more and more swollen vegetables break through the meniscus, the sky begins to darken, and a giant oval metal shape descends. Valentine! It's soup! We're in an anxiety dream! Will Valentine and Cameron survive? Find out after a brief word from our sponsors at the Bedford House of Roast Beef. The Bedford House of Beef is the most wonderful place where I can get an old-fashioned beef sandwich for only $3. After a long and exhausting lunch rush, Doran and Sage lean against the counter, moving as little as possible so as to conserve their energy. I can't believe that kid bought a 15-layer beef sandwich. I can't believe he ate the whole thing. They're silent for a moment, their minds eye-gazing upon the sight of a skinny freshman seeming to unhinge his jaw and snake-like engulf his enormous sandwich. In unison, they shrug. <sighs> so, uh, your dream. I-, I was thinking about it during the rush. Jeez, I had almost forgotten. So, uh, soup. Soup is nourishing, right? Sure. Right, uh, it's inherently good. If you like soup. Do you like soup? Yeah. Good. Uh, It's your dream. You like soup. Soup is good and nourishing. You're, You're part of the soup in the dream, right? So you see yourself as good and nourishing, or, or 
or maybe doing something good and nourishing. Yeah, okay, I can see that. But why is it scary if being soup is good? Because soup is meant to be consumed. And you're not in control of who consumes you. Oh, oh, yeah. If it weren't for that spoon, I could just party soup style. Exactly. Though that is a a truly disturbing sentence. Anyway, you have the dream every night, right? Every night before work, yeah. So, and let me just put on my psychoanalyst hat here. I, I don't think we're allowed to wear hats that aren't these paper ones in here. Oh my god, dude, it's a figure of speech. What I was going to say is that I think you feel exploited by this job. Sage, I have so much respect for you, but I can't believe we had to go through this many hoops to figure that out. We work in a sandwich shop. Hell yeah, we do. Honestly, I love it. Sandwiches, they speak to my soul. Don't you have, like, a degree in psychology? Yeah, and that sucked, so I chose this instead. But I don't think it's good for you. You need to find something that nourishes you. Like soup? Yeah. Like soup. Huh. I feel better. Like, really better. Boom! Epiphany. Thanks, dude. I owe you one. Hey. What are co-workers for? Anyway, look alive. We got a straggler coming in. Behold! I've got to get out of here. Wow, what an incredible message. We now return you to our dreamscape programming. Already in progress. Valentine hangs tightly to the spoon as it dips in for another taste of lake. Cameron! Do something! Uh, I'm trying! Give me your pseudopod! Oh, Cameron! I think this is what fear is! Oh, I don't like it! Cameron! Valentine flings out its limb, trying to grab hold of Cameron's outstretched hand. The violent motion of the spoon making it almost impossible to reach, when suddenly... The entire dream freezes and begins to flicker. The sky, once blue before becoming covered with bruise-like clouds, now covers itself with snowy, gentle static. What is this? Am I dead? Can I die? You're not dead. I think... I think that this dream is being... processed? Oh no, a buddy of mine went that way. No, this is good. We've got a grace period before this whole thing gets absorbed back into the psyche. Now what if we're still in here when that happens? Well, let's not find out. Here, see if you can tear off some of that spoon's metal. Valentine cautiously extends its pseudopods to the edges of the giant spoon to which it still clings. The metal, once stronger than belief, now has a soft, bendy consistency. Hey, I I think I needed the whole spoon head. Do it! And with a sound like tearing silk, Valentine rips off a door-sized piece of thought metal. Got it. 
However, it had not thought through the consequence of ripping off the same chunk of metal that was supporting it, and falls heavily to the ground with a clang and a splat. Valentine? Speak to me! Yeah, someone get the number of that animal complex! Come on, let's get you out of here before the whole place goes. And heaving Valentine to its many, many feet, the two of them grab the giant spoonhead and run down the mountain, not daring to glance over their shoulders. Or in the case of Valentine, it's Thorax. If they had done so, they might have seen the dream behind them, bereft of spoon, begin to warp and shift. Bedford House of Roast Beef, as the beefsmiths hang up their aprons and hats for the next shift to come in, a shift comes across Doran as well. Huh. Hey Sage, what if I shift my perception? Of what? The dream. Myself? I I don't know. Oh, right, that. Dude, that was hours ago. Well, I'm still thinking about it. Soup is something you give people you care about. I think... I think maybe I want to keep this job. You sure? What about the spoon? Don't you feel, uh, consumed here or whatever? Spoon? What are you talking about? You know, from the dream. The spoon? I don't remember a spoon. And Sage not wanting to get into a whole argument over someone else's dream. Let's a draw. Secretly glad that their favorite co-worker is sticking around. Under the darkling sky, Cameron fuses the thought metal of the stolen spoon to the rifts in the car. The shiny tin goes waxen and dough-like as Cameron presses it against the chassis. Then, as they take their hands away, reforms, shiny, and seemingly whole, as though the crash never happened. You don't think we did some damage there, do you? It's not like a dream is gonna make some big shift in someone's life. It's not like this kid is gonna stay in some job that they hate without ever realizing the source of their problems just because we hijacked their epiphany. Huh. What an odd thing to say. And as Cameron climbs back into the car, she glances over her shoulder. Do you think whatever we hit is still out there? Oh, definitely. We should get out of here yesterday. All right, pick a direction. Let's say that way. And behind them, in the darkness, something terrible and multifaceted and sharp opens its eyes. And now, it's angry. Oh man, I totally called it. Okay, okay. We're leaving this station on for the rest of the trip. This is Infinity Point Nine XPSN. All exposition, all the time. Good luck out there, dreamers.
This episode was written by Max Kreisky and edited by Milo Jordan. It was directed by Angela Yee, with dialogue editing by Greg Korobus, and sound design by Brad Kulberg. Music was made by Eamon Connolly. Transcription by Nzinga Primus. Cameron was played by Angela Yee. Valentine was played by Greg Korobus. The radio was played by Eamon Connolly. Doran was played by Milo Jordan. Sage was played by Max Kreisky. Thank you for listening to Hubris. Hubris.